0: you will open your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. This morning we do continue in our study that we began in uh, the early part of September. Uh, this uh, weekend, next will be the last two that we're in Romans, for, at least for a short time. Uh, where Advent season is soon upon us, and so in uh, two weeks from now we begin that. Uh, but we uh, finish up at a, at a natural place because uh, most uh, Bible scholars would say the first four chapters create a, a unit. So it was nice of the calendar to work out that way for us uh, this year uh, as we look this morning at the first part of Romans chapter 4. Uh, and then next week, Camper will lead us in the, in the last part uh, of, of Romans chapter 4. This morning, our first passage, Romans 4, 1 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about whom God counts righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The word of our God, let's pray. Our Father, as we come to this word which can seem at times confusing uh, as if perhaps Paul was just pulling in tidbits of information and forming them in a way that uh, is difficult to see the point that he was making. Lord, I pray that you would enable us this morning to see the point that Paul was making, the point that you are making through him. Not only to see it, to understand. And to be amazed, even enable us to rejoice, to delight in what is said here. For Lord, in these words, you reveal and illustrate to us the way that you have made for us to fellowship with you, to experience your love by your grace. So Lord, grace us now. Not only in the experience, but in the understanding which enriches our experience. We may live with the joy as children, the loved of the living God. We pray in Christ, our Redeemer, our King. Amen. Committee George Carlin made this statement. Just when I discovered the meaning of life, they changed it, and it was Carlin's kind of tongue-in-cheek way of responding to the dizzying speed of change that is occurring all around us, And and speaking for us about just the discomfort that it creates so often. We know that change is inevitable and some changes we just learn to live with but so many of the things that go on around us we wonder if they're necessary and some of the changes and so frequently and so fast changing it's actually even frightening. Mary Shelley the writer author of uh, Frankenstein says nothing is so painful to the human mind and as great and sudden change. And so when we are experiencing those changes or when we are faced with changes that we don't consider to be necessary or beneficial, sometimes we push back, sometimes we chafe. I think about it at times when your computer is now giving you updates that you didn't even know that it needed or, or your phone. Think about McDonald's deciding they're going to become a health food source and how their stock began to tank because you know what, that's just too much change. Perhaps the cultural greatest cultural example of that was the whole idea of New Coke. Don't change anything that doesn't need to be changed. And so people pressured this company, and it still stands as one of the greatest marketing blunders in all of history. Change is inevitable. Change is necessary. Change can be good, but change can be too much. Now, I think it's pertinent to what we're reading here this morning is because through this letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul has laid waste to everyone's pretense of righteousness. Every person on on earth is now standing on equal ground as not being holy. Paul summarized it very well as he says, look, all have sinned and uh, and have fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one as righteous, no one. We're we're all standing here uh, the same. And then as we looked at Romans chapter 3, Paul introduces a righteousness that comes from God apart from the law. And that is the hope that he is saying that is for all people, religious, irreligious, Gentile, Jew, it doesn't really matter that that is the only hope that we have. And it's quite likely that some of Paul's readers, whether they were Jewish or Gentile, would have thought to themselves and maybe even said out loud, this sounds, I've never heard anything like this. Is Paul coming up with some kind of a new religion? And Romans chapter 4 is Paul's proof that salvation by grace, through faith, has always been God's plan and the only way God has ever saved anyone. And in the text, as he kind of weaves together various items to create a kind of a a mosaic of proof, he appeals primarily to two dimensions. One is historic and the other is relational in order to demonstrate to us that what he is saying is the way things have always been. First, we look historically. Paul, uh, Paul points historically uh, to the father of the Jewish people, Abraham, as the primary example of the point that he is making, showing us uh, that what he has been saying has always been the case. Uh, he begins this section by what shall we say? It would say was gained by Abraham, our forefather. And he's speaking there, knowing very definitely. Mostly, he's he's probably thinking of those who were Jewish and sharing his own Jewish identity. Uh, but as Moses had pointed out in the uh, earlier in in the book of Genesis, is that. Abraham is not just father of the Jewish people but to people from every nation anyone who would believe in the promise that God had made and the covenant that he had entered into with Abraham and so he's saying what what shall we say about our father he's the the common father Uh, what benefit what is it that he gained in the covenant that God made with him now, again, the point here that we need to uh, mention is this, is that Abraham is perhaps the, the most magisterial figure in the Old Testament. Really, there's only three that even could be argued about, whether it's Moses, Abraham, or, or David. Moses is alluded to here because he's the one that recorded the covenant of Abraham in the first place. Abraham is the primary one that he's pointing to. And then in a moment, Paul's going to bring David into the equation as well, saying, look, things have always been the same. And and the argument that he's making here uh, about Abraham, who had grown up in a pagan culture, was called out of that by God's grace for no other reason than God had decided that he was going to create a people distinct to himself, whom he would bless so that it would be evident to the nations that God who was blessing this people was a God who you wanted to belong to. And he was going to relate to that people on the nature of a covenant that he had made with one individual who was the the fountain of that, the, the forefather of all of that, which was Abraham. And so he calls Abraham out of this pagan background, that he grew up fairly wealthy. you know, He certainly had a future in his pagan world. He uh, had a a good business. He was going to inherit from his father. They had wealth. They had land. Seems like they had uh, somewhat uh, a decent family, uh, at at least from what is revealed. And God calls him one day and said, Abram, I want you to go to the place where I am sending you. Abram asked where, and the Lord said, I'll tell you when you get there. And Abram obeyed. Not long after that, Abram, that was in in Genesis chapter 12, not long after Abram's uh, 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 story is told in Genesis 12 through 25. And I would strongly encourage you to read that. I know you've been reading through Romans once a month, but take some time to read the story of Abraham because so much of our faith is rooted in that man's life with God. But as Abram obeyed and he went, God made a promise to him. He said, I'm going to make you a great nation, the father of a great nation, which probably seemed somewhat like a cruel joke for a short time. His name at the time was Abram, which means father of many. And at this point in life, when he was called, he was about 75 years old, had no kids. He and his wife seemed to have come to grips with that, but it was one of those things that probably was a a reminder now all of a sudden God says I'm going to change your name and I'm going to name you Abraham which means father of many nations and so kind of seeming an unfair joke but promised that he would provide for him a son even in their old age his wife Sarah his wife thought that was a joke so she she laughed uh, irony is that they ended up naming their child Abraham Abram was called by God, and God said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And Abraham believed God, and we are told, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Interestingly, soon thereafter, God says to Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. And Abraham said, how am I going to know? Which is really a wonderful picture of ourselves, so it makes sense that we are after him. I'm going to give you, make you the father of many nations. You don't even have any kids, but I'm going to make you the father of many nations. I'm going to provide uh, that kid. And we don't have any problem believing God for the, the huge things, but I'm going to give you a land, a place to live. And God, how do I know that that's going to be you? How do I know that I can trust you? But Abraham remained faithful, and he obeyed God because he was faithful. And it's part of the covenant that was then later cut. The sign of circumcision was the part that he was to apply to demonstrate obedience to that covenant. And even the whole idea of the covenant. And covenants in the Old Testament were cut, not caused, not created, not made. It wasn't a contract that was made the contracts to be broken. Covenant was cut. And the reason that they said covenant was cut is when a covenant was entered into, an animal, a sacrifice was taken and was quartered. And the parts were separated. And if both parties were essentially equal when they entered into a covenant, uh, they would both walk through, each on their own terms, uh, on their own time, and and they would therefore symbolically be declaring that if I break this covenant, I deserve uh, to the same fate to be quartered, to be killed, as the sacrifice has been. When a covenant was cut between weaker and lesser party, for instance, if a king was to cut a covenant with his people, the covenant would be cut and then the people, the weaker party, the ones most likely to break it would be the ones to walk through as a reminder that if you don't keep your part of this, this is what can happen to you. But in the covenant that God cut with Abraham, God who is the king of kings, he is above all things, he cut this covenant with Abraham and then when the when the parties were quartered, clearly they're not equal so not both parties were going to go through. But in this case, God himself walked through the covenant and saying that I am making these promises to you. And if something mess, is messed up, this is what will happen to me. I will take this punishment. I will die on behalf of this covenant. And Abram was the beneficiary of that covenant. God was faithful to his promise, not only giving him a son, but then grandchildren and becoming the father of many nations. And so Paul, as he's appear, appealing to him here, he's saying, so what did Abraham benefit? What does the scripture say? We see it in verse 3. And Paul answers his own rhetorical question. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as Righteousness. It was by God's grace, through faith, that Abraham was declared to be righteous. And then he picks up on that same argument, saying it's always been this way, and he, we see him bringing David in as he quotes David in verses six through eight. In verse seven, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered blessed a man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. And so his illustration here is saying that not only was Abraham declared righteous by believing, but David understood that his own salvation, David, the great king of Israel, knew that his own salvation was by God's grace. In other words, Paul's arguing that Everything he has just said, the righteousness apart from the law that has been revealed from heaven, that is appropriated by believing God, his promise, and his provision has always been the case. Because the, God, the promise that God made to Abraham is that he would provide He would provide the sacrifice that would come through his line. Now, why is this important? There is a sense in which it's important because it, it does tell us something about the continuity of the Old Testament and the New Testament, something that is missed by by many. Sometimes people read and sometimes we're taught to read the Bible as if the Old Testament has very little relevance. It was only a foundation, but it, it is it, you know now it's been totally done away with and only the New Testament matters. Paul's argument is, which is true of all of the scripture, is... While there are some things that God has shifted and switched for his reasons, the Bible is one story. There's a continuity in the old and the new. The new didn't come and change God's plan. God didn't say, this one's not working, and then come up with a, a new plan, which is, I'll send Jesus, and then the whole thing will be about grace, because no matter how much I help my people, they don't seem to be getting it. That part would be true. But what he's saying is, it's always been this way. I think maybe even more important than recognizing that there's a continuity in the Old Testament and the New Testament, is a reminder to us that our God is the same yesterday, today, and he will be forever. He doesn't change his mind. He didn't fail with his first plan, and we didn't mess up his first plan. His first plan is still in effect. That our only hope is that we would be declared righteous, that we would be made right with God by his grace through a gift that he gives of faith. And that's how we appropriate the salvation and the relationship that we can have with him forever. And and so it's important that we understand that what Paul has been saying, that we are righteous by God's grace through faith, is the way it has always been. But I think there's another practical importance that we see in our text as well that we need to recognize here because Paul has appealed historically to those who have gone before to show the, the, the relationship that God has, ha, has entered into with his people but we see another dimension here as well and it's not just the historic case he's making but there's a, there's a relational dynamic as well and, and I would I'd say that the relational dynamic is this When we relate to God by grace through faith, Paul shows us that it undermines our pride and eliminates those things in which we tend to trust that are apart from God himself. When we recognize God's plan and that it has been his plan from the very beginning, it changes the way that we relate to God and the way that we see our salvation. And in this passage, Paul challenges three of the primary ways in which we are prone to measure our spirituality. Not only us, but people of past generations, whether they are Jewish or whether they are Gentile. And it's very, very common that we see those things not only addressed, but they are disarmed. Leaving us only with one hope, which is God's grace through his provision, which was in answer to his promise. And in this passage, we see first and foremost that Paul addresses works. We see it in in verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. So he's addressing the primary thing that people are prone to gauge their sense of spirituality, their, their rightness with God, which is the good things that we do generation ago, a a theologian named John Gerstner said that it's not your sins that keep you from God so much as your damnable good deeds. The things that we look at and say well, of course, God will accept us. I'm a good person. Look at all the things that I do. It's a natural inclination that we all have. Paul goes on in this in passage when he talks about works we see in verse 4. Now, to one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift but as his due. In other words, when you go to work and it's time for your paycheck to come, uh, you don't think of the, the, uh, of the paycheck as the gift of your employer. You entered into a contract, you agreed to work for a certain amount, and when you do the work, you expect the pay. It is your due. You have earned it. Paul is making the case here as he continues in verse 5, but the one who does not work but believes in him who who justifies the ungodly has faith counted as righteousness. So he's making a distinction here. If our salvation, our relationship with God was based in any way on what we had done, there is no grace. It's what we deserve. It is what we have earned. Paul is saying here we also recognize that we don't do enough good works. And which of our good works should merit us extra credit? We were created we were designed to do good things. So the fact is, anything that we do that is good is really what we should be doing in the first place. But the salvation that we have is a gift from God Paul wrote elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 2 it's by grace that you have been saved through faith and this not of your own doing it is a gift of God not a result of our works, so that no one may boast so Paul here in Ephesians and elsewhere is doing what God is trying to do is he is stripping us of the pride of our own efforts our own energies our own worthiness leaving us with nothing other than the hope and trust in the promise that God has given to us. And we see it evident in this passage all throughout because the word credited or, or counted as permeates everything that we read this morning. Eight times in verses 1 through 12, there's some allusion to something being credited or something being counted as if it is yours. And that is the, the nature of the salvation. He's, Paul's saying that it is the righteousness of Christ that is credited to you. It, credit is an accounting term that means that it's, it's bestowing a status that wasn't there previously or isn't earned, isn't deserved. Paul's reminding us that our, our salvation and our life is based on a credit, something that is counted as ours but not something that we have stored up. So that we can earn it on our own. And in so doing, his point being is he eliminates pride that is reflected in the in verse two. Where's the boasting? Because what God is doing here through the reality of our salvation being by grace. ...through faith in Christ Jesus. is eliminating pride. It's the great boast buster. Grace busts our boasting. Then he moves on. Having wiped out the idea that it's our good works... ...anything, good deeds that we do that would earn us salvation... He moves to another dimension we see picking up in in verse 9. Is this blessing the one that both Abraham and David understood only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? And so he's moving now from our good works to religion. Writing to Jewish people and to people that had come out of pagan backgrounds into a church that is built on a Jewish foundation. They were certainly familiar with the whole idea and the identity that was associated with the practice of circumcision. It was God's design that he had initiated, that in that covenant, that anyone who belonged to Abram, who was part of the promise that he was going to give, they were to be marked as part of the covenant through circumcision. Any son that was born into that household, either biologically or adopted or purchased as part of... Uh, of their servant, but if they were in the household of Abraham, they were to have the sign of circumcision applied. If they missed it on the eighth day, then they would deal with it later. And so we see some of the most, um, I'll call them bizarre and painful experiences of Israel taking place later when they had wandered through the wilderness and they had not been faithful to the covenant and circumcision applied to the men. When Joshua assumed uh, leadership and Leaving uh, replacing Moses and taking the people into uh, the promised land, uh, the first thing that Joshua was told to do as a leader is have every man among you be circumcised. Try that in the leadership. This is my first order, all of you circumcised, no anesthesia. Generations later as well. and so in God it said that he takes it so seriously this sign that was, that, was, that was appointed. And, and so everybody that was, had any Jewish background or familiar with the Jewish, uh, Jew, Jewish faith recognized the significance of circumcision. Now, for us, it would be baptism because we're told in the New Testament that the, the sign of the covenant is no longer circumcision. It is reflected in baptism. So those who are baptized, what Paul is referring to here are those who are part of what would be known as the household of God. And those who have all of the external markings that would seem to be consistent with faithfulness to the house of God, but he's speaking to the idea that it is those things that have any merit to save us. First, he says that the reason that he's addressing this is because Abram was the father of nations, both Gentile and uh, both Jew and Gentile, to the circumcised and to the uncircumcised. And, and now, what he's doing here is he's challenging those who had a pretense of faith because they were part of, of, of the church, because they had been baptized, circumcised, because they had joined the church. People who were walking around with a false assurance of their relationship with God simply because of their membership in the household of God. He's saying here, now this circumcision thing that you're taking your comfort in that you're taking your pride in. Does this blessing belong only to those who are circumcised or the uncircumcised? And he says it's to both. And then he says this. When was Abraham circumcised? In relation to when was he declared to be righteous? Was it before or after he was circumcised? If you go back and you look at the story, and Paul gives you the shorthand of it here, he says he was declared righteous before circumcision. In fact, if you were to go through and do the math, most Bible scholars would tell you that there's at least 14 years before covenant that included circumcision was inaugurated. Fourteen years earlier was when Abraham was declared righteous, simply because he believed God by faith. That God faithful to his promise not only to provide him land and to become a nation but through him he would bless the world through the ultimate provision and so he eliminates the idea that religion, our membership in the church, in the household of God can make us right and then at verse 13 he appeals to the law itself which sometimes we Uh, Count as being the same as doing good deeds, but we do many good deeds that the law may or may not specify. And there are things that are in the law that you are to do and not to do that may or may not have anything to do with doing good deeds. And so they are different categories. But he deals in verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And so in this, we see Paul is making the case not because it's just the way Christians do things. But he's saying that recognizing that our salvation comes by grace through faith also has practical implications. And as he busts our boasting, he leaves us with the only hope, which is believing or not believing the promise that God has made. But a generation ago, uh, D. James Kennedy, who was at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, uh, developed uh, an evangelism program called Evangelism Explosion. The first question that he asked in Evangelism Explosion, some of you are probably familiar with it, was this. "Is If you were to die tonight, how certain are you that you would go to heaven? And the follow-up question to that is, and what would you say to God is the reason that he should let you into his heaven. Now as we've moved into a more of a post-Christian culture, another church leader has changed uh, uh, Kennedy's question somewhat, uh, rephrasing it this way. Assuming that there is a heaven, what do you think are the general requirements for admission? And so whether you are a believer and have been for a long time, or whether you're somebody who's exploring the Christian faith, I would challenge you to be able to to answer those questions. And and how would you answer question? How, Assuming there is a heaven, or those of you who know that there is a heaven, how certain are you going to go? And what do you believe are the general requirements of getting in? What would you tell God is the reason that he should lie? Those who research such things have done studies and found that the average church member will answer in one of three ways. The first and most common response is this, is that I should be allowed to go into heaven because I do my best to be a good Christian. The second answer is this, is I should be allowed to go to heaven because I believe in God and I really try to do his will. And the third response is, I, I should be allowed to go to heaven because I believe in God with all of my heart. And I don't know whether any of those answers are in line with what you would say. There's, there's a plausibility in one sense for in every single one of them. Uh, but whether you recognize it or not, there is a serious flaw in every one of them as well. Because another theologian had looked at those questions and the, the responses that... Uh, are in line with those, uh, uh, with those categories and pointed out that the, the, the answer to the first question, that I should go because I do my best to be a good Christian, believes salvation is by words. I, I should be able to go in is because I, I do my best to do good things and obey the law. The flow in the second question that I should be allowed to go in is because I do believe in God and I try to do His will, it is a salvation by faith plus works, not faith in Christ alone and God's promise alone. And the third answer I should be allowed in because I believe in God with all of my heart. Well, that sounds like a good answer really is a reflection that the responder believes that their faith is a work, that they have merited something because of their belief. And these are very common and I'm not sharing this because I'm trying to give you the answer so that should you pass tonight, you you know the password to get in. Kind of like I'm going to let you into the clubhouse in our community, you know. You can't get in, you don't live there, you don't have the right code, but I'll give you my code and that way, as long as you apply my code, you can get in. That's, that's not the reason why. I share this first and foremost because we all need to wrestle with this and, and consider the merits because Paul is being very specific here, and in that sense, God, who is incredibly broad bringing people from everywhere and every background, is very narrow. The only way is by faith. And what God's promise of Christ has done. And second, our understanding of that shapes the way that we live our lives. It's not just people who go to churches that don't deal with doctrine that get this messed up. Another theologian named Richard Lovelace has recognized this. The problem for most of us, no matter what our confessional theology, no matter what it is that we claim we believe, we function as if. We believe in an upside-down Christianity. And he says that most of us base our justification being made right with God upon our sanctification, which means how good we have done. Paul is making it clear that how we live our lives is based upon our belief in what God has done for us. We, We turn it upside down because in our brokenness we all are functionally Religious. Paul here says that the answer is faith in God's promise. Verse 13, it's very clear. It did not come through the law, but through righteousness of faith. Believing in God's promise. Faith is not just believing in a set of facts, even if they are the right facts. There are many people that would say, I believe in God. I believe that God sent his son, that Jesus is the son of God. I believe Jesus died. I even believe that he rose again on the third day. And while those are facts that are consistent with God's promise, it's not the mere intellectual assent because James points out that even demons know those facts, but they respond emotionally with, by shuddering. It's not the knowledge of those facts and the assenting to those facts, but it is trusting God's promise and resting in those facts. Faith is resting in God's grace his gift and his promise of Jesus Christ and in a world that is filled with dizzying speed of change I find it comforting to know that our God remains the same and so does his plan because if he had changed it once couldn't he change it again but from the beginning till Christ's return our hope is in Christ alone Father as we come to this passage I thank you pray that you would bless us with this understanding of it that we would be humbled by recognizing there is nothing that we are able to contribute nothing that we do except receiving the gift of grace and faith through which we appropriate grace, and then responding to one who would give grace to the ungodly like us. Father, by your Spirit, may we not just skip over that. May your Spirit impress that upon us. We would stand in awe and wonder at a God who would love those who did not love him. May we now love because we see how you have loved us. I pray in Christ.